0: From the Conference Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, this is the Sunday morning session of the 193rd Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, with speakers selected from leaders of the church. Music for this session is provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast is furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited. President Dallin H. Oaks, First Counselor in the First Presidency of the Church, will conduct this session.
1: Brothers and sisters, we welcome you to the Sunday morning session of the 193rd Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We recognize that today is Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of the week leading up to Easter Sunday. We are grateful to begin this sacred Easter season with each of you and pray that our hearts will be turned to our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of the World. President Russell M. Nelson, who presides at the conference, has asked me to conduct this session. We extend our greetings and blessings to those of you who are participating in these proceedings throughout the world by radio, television, the internet, or satellite transmission. We acknowledge the General Authorities and the General Officers who are in attendance this morning. The music for this session will be provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square under the direction of Mac Wilberg with Andrew Unsworth and Richard Elliott at the organ. The choir opened this meeting with Glory to God on High and will now favor us with My Redeemer Lives. The invocation will then be offered by Elder James R. Rasband of the Seventy.
2: Dear Eternal Father in Heaven, we are so grateful to meet together on this Palm Sunday morning, remembering that more than two millennia ago, Thy Son entered Jerusalem on this day and then that holy week, He did not shrink but suffered and died and atoned for each of us in Gethsemane and then on Golgotha. We are so grateful for the joyful news of His resurrection and that hope for each of us. Now, as we begin this meeting, we ask thee to bless and strengthen those who will speak and all those who will help us worship the translators and the music and the technology. We ask thee to bless us that we might learn today through the Holy Ghost how we might act to better love and serve thee and better love and help our neighbor. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: We will now be pleased to hear from Elder D. Todd Christofferson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by President Camille N. Johnson, Relief Society General President. Following her remarks, the choir will sing Secret Prayer. We will then hear from Elder Ulysses Soares of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and Elder Kazuhiko Yamashita of the Seventy.
3: As President Oaks has noted, today is Palm Sunday, the start of Holy Week, marking the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. His suffering in Gethsemane and death on the cross just days later and His glorious Resurrection on Easter Sunday. Let us resolve never to forget what Christ endured to redeem us. And let us never lose the overwhelming joy we will feel once again on Easter as we contemplate His victory over the grave and the gift of universal Resurrection. The evening before the trials and crucifixion that awaited Him Jesus joined in a Passover meal with His apostles. At the end of this Last Supper, in a sacred intercessory prayer, Jesus petitioned His Father in these words, Holy Father, keep through Thine own name mine apostles, whom Thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Then tenderly the Savior extended this invitation or this petition to all believers. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us." Becoming one is a recurring theme in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in God's dealings with His children. With respect to the city of Enoch, city of Zion in Enoch's day, It is said that they were of one heart and one mind. Of the early Saints in the primitive Church of Jesus Christ, the New Testament records the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. In our own dispensation, the Lord admonished, I say unto you, Be one, and if you are not one, you are not mine. Among the reasons the Lord gave as to why the early Saints in Missouri had failed to establish a place of Zion was that they are not united according to the union required by the law of the celestial kingdom. Where God prevails in all hearts and minds, the people are described as in one the children of Christ. When the resurrected Savior appeared to the ancient Book of Mormon peoples, he noted with disapproval that in the past there had been disputations among the people about baptism and other matters. He commanded, There shall be no disputations among you, as there have hitherto been. Neither shall there be disputations among you concerning the points of my doctrine, as there have hitherto been. For verily, verily, I say unto you, He that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil who is the father of contention. In our extremely contentious world, how can unity be achieved, especially in the Church, where we are to have one Lord, one faith, one baptism? Paul gives us the key. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. We are too diverse and at times too discordant to be able to come together as one on any other basis or under any other name. Only in Jesus Christ can we truly become one. Becoming one in Christ happens one by one. We each begin with ourselves. We are dual beings of flesh and spirit and are sometimes at war within ourselves. As Paul expressed, "...for I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in the members of my body warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members." Jesus was also a being of flesh and spirit. He was tested. He understands. He can help us achieve unity within. Therefore, drawing upon the light and the grace of Christ, we strive to give our spirit and the Holy Spirit dominance over the physical. And when we fall short, Christ, by His Atonement, has given us the gift of repentance and the opportunity to try again. If individually we each put on Christ, then together we can hope to become as one, as Paul said, the body of Christ. To put on Christ certainly includes making His first and great commandment our first and greatest commitment. And if we love God, we will keep His commandments. Unity with our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ grows as we heed the Second Commandment, inextricably connected to the first, to love others as ourselves. And I, I suppose an even more perfect unity would obtain among us if we followed the Savior's higher and holier expression of this Second Commandment, to love one another not only as we love ourselves but as He loved us. In sum, it is every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. President Marion G. Romney, a former counselor in the First Presidency, in explaining how enduring peace and unity are obtained, said, if a single person yielding to Satan is Filled with the works of the flesh, he wars within himself. If two yield, they war within themselves and fight with each other. If many people yield, a society reaps the harvest of great stress and contention. If the rulers of a country yield, there is worldwide contention. President Romney continued, As the works of the flesh have universal application, so likewise does the gospel of peace. If one man lives it, he has peace within himself. If two men live it, they each have peace within themselves and with each other. If the citizens live it, the nation has domestic peace. And when there are enough nations enjoying the fruit of the Spirit to control world affairs, then, and only then, will the war drums throb no longer and the battle flags be furled. By putting on Christ, it becomes possible either to resolve or to lay aside differences, disagreements, and disputes. A rather dramatic example of overcoming division is found in our Church history. Elder Brigham Henry Roberts, commonly known as B.H. Roberts, born in England in 1857, served as a member of the First Council of the Seventy, what we refer to today as the Presidency of the Seventy. Elder Roberts was an able and tireless defender of the restored gospel and of the Church in some of its most difficult times. In 1895, however, Elder Roberts' service in the Church was put in jeopardy by contention. B.H. had been appointed as a delegate to the convention that drafted a constitution for Utah when it became a state. Afterward, he decided to become a candidate for the United States Congress but did not notify or seek permission from the First Presidency. Things were a little different then. (laughs) President Joseph F. Smith, a counselor in the First Presidency, censured B.H. for that failure in a general priesthood meeting. Elder Roberts lost the election and felt his defeat was due in large part to President Smith's statements. He was critical of Church leaders in some political speeches and interviews he withdrew from active Church service. In a lengthy meeting in the Salt Lake Temple with members of the First Presidency and Council of the Twelve, B.H. remained adamant in justifying himself. Later, President Wilford Woodruff gave Elder Roberts three weeks to reconsider his position. If he remained unrepentant, they would release him from the Seventy. In a subsequent private meeting with Apostles Heber J. Grant and Francis Lyman, B.H. was initially unyielding, but love and the Holy Spirit ultimately prevailed. Tears came to his eyes. The two apostles were able to respond to certain perceived slights and offenses that troubled B.H., and they left with a heartfelt plea for reconciliation. The next morning after lengthy prayer, Elder Roberts sent a note to Elders Grant and Lyman that he was prepared to reunite with his brethren. When he later met with the First Presidency, Elder Roberts said, I went to the Lord and received light and instruction through His Spirit to submit to the authority of God. Motivated by his love of God, B. H. Roberts remained a faithful and an able Church leader to the end of his life. We can also see in this example that unity does not mean simply agreeing that everyone should do his or her own thing or go his or her own way. We cannot be one unless we all bend our efforts to the common cause. It means, in B. H. Roberts' words, submitting to the authority of God. We are different members of the body of Christ, fulfilling different functions at different times, the ear, the eye, the head, the hand, the feet, yet all of one body. Therefore, our goal is that there should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care one for another. Unity does not require sameness, but it does require harmony. We can have our hearts knit together in love, be one in faith and doctrine, and still cheer for different teams or disagree on various political issues, debate about goals and the right way to achieve them, and many other such things. But we can never disagree or contend with anger or contempt for one another. Said the Savior, For verily, verily I say unto you, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And he stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another. Behold, this is not my doctrine, to stir up the hearts of men with anger one against another. But this is my doctrine that such things should be done away. A year ago, President Russell M. Nelson pled with us in these words, quote, None of us can control nations or the actions of others or even members of our own families. But we can control ourselves. My call today, dear brothers and sisters, is to end conflicts that are raging in your heart, your home, and your life bury any and all inclinations to hurt others, whether those inclinations be a temper, a sharp tongue, or a resentment for someone who has hurt you. The Savior commanded us to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, and to pray for those who despitefully use us." I say again that it is only in and through our individual loyalty to and love of Jesus Christ that we can hope to be one, one within, one at home, one in the Church, eventually one in Zion, and above all, one with the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. I return to the events of Holy Week and the ultimate triumph of our Redeemer. The Resurrection of Jesus Christ bears witness of His divinity and that He has overcome all things. His Resurrection bears witness that, bound to Him by covenant, we too may overcome all things and become one. His Resurrection bears witness that, through Him, immortality and eternal life are realities. This morning I bear witness of His literal Resurrection and all that it implies. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
4: With faith in Jesus Christ and hope in what they had heard of His miracles, the caregivers of a man with palsy brought him to Jesus. They were innovative in getting him there, uncovering the roof, and lowering the man on his bed to the place where Jesus was teaching. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the man with palsy, Thy sins are forgiven thee, and then arise, and take up thy bed, and go thy way into thine house. And immediately the man with palsy arose and took his bed and departed for home, glorifying God. What more do we know of the friends who provided care for the man with palsy? We know that the Savior recognized their faith, and having seen and heard the Savior and being a witness to His miracles, they were amazed and glorified God. Jesus Christ had provided the hoped for healing, physical relief from pain, and the crippling consequences of chronic disease. Significantly, the Savior also provided spiritual relief in cleansing the man from sin. And the friends, in their efforts to care for one in need, they found the source of relief. They found Jesus Christ. I testify that Jesus Christ is relief. Through the Atonement of Jesus Christ, we may be relieved of the burden and consequences of sin and be succored in our infirmities. And because we love God and have covenanted to serve Him, we can partner with the Savior to help provide temporal and spiritual relief for those in need and in the process find our own relief in Jesus Christ. Our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, invited us to overcome the world and find rest. He defined true rest as relief and peace. President Nelson said, "Quote: Because the Savior, through His infinite Atonement, redeemed each of us from weakness, mistakes, and sin, and because He experienced every pain, worry, and burden you have ever had, then as you truly repent and seek His help, you can rise above this present precarious world." Quote. That is the relief Jesus Christ offers us. Each of us is carrying a metaphorical backpack. It may be a basket balanced on your head or a satchel or a bundle of things wrapped in cloth and thrown over your shoulder. But for our thinking, let's call it a backpack. This metaphorical backpack is where we carry the burdens of living in a fallen world. Our burdens are like rocks in the backpack. Generally, there are three kinds. Rocks there are of our own doing because of sin, rocks in our backpack because of the poor decisions, misconduct, and unkindness of others, and rocks we carry because we are living in a fallen condition. These include the rocks of disease, pain, chronic illness, grief, disappointment, loneliness, and the effects of natural disasters. I joyfully declare that our mortal burdens, these rocks in our figurative backpack, need not feel heavy. Jesus Christ can lighten our load. Jesus Christ can lift our burdens. Jesus Christ provides a way for us to be relieved of the weight of sin. Jesus Christ is our relief. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is relief and peace. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That the yoke is easy and the burden is light presumes we get in the yoke with the Savior, that we share our burdens with Him, that we let Him lift our load. That means entering into covenant relationship with God and keeping that covenant, which, as President Nelson has explained, makes everything about life easier. He said, Yoking yourself with the Savior means you have access to His strength, and redeeming power." So why are we stingy with our rocks? Why would a weary baseball pitcher refuse to leave the mound when a reliever is there ready to complete the game? Why would I insist on maintaining my post alone when the reliever stands ready to keep it with me? President Nelson has taught, Jesus Christ stands with open arms, hoping and willing to heal, forgive, cleanse, strengthen, purify, and sanctify us." Quote. So why do we insist on carrying our rocks alone? It is intended as a personal question for each of you to consider. For me, it is the age-old vice of pride. I've got this, I say. No worries. I'll get it done. It's the great deceiver who wants me to hide from God, to turn away from Him, to go at it alone. Brothers and sisters, I can't go at it alone, and I don't need to, and I won't. Choosing to be bound to my Savior Jesus Christ through the covenants I have made with God, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Covenant keepers are blessed with the Savior's relief, Consider the example in the Book of Mormon. The people of Alma were persecuted with tasks upon them and taskmasters over them. Forbidden to pray vocally, they did pour out their hearts to God, and He did know the thoughts of their hearts. And the voice of the Lord came to them in their afflictions, saying, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort, for I know of the covenant which ye have made with me, and I will covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage. And I will also ease the burdens which are put upon their shoulders, that even you cannot fill them upon your backs." And their burdens were made light, and the Lord did strengthen them, that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Those covenant-keepers received relief in the form of comfort, increased patience and cheerfulness, and ease in their burdens so that they felt light and, ultimately, deliverance. Now let's return to our own metaphorical backpack. Repentance, through the Atonement of Jesus Christ, is what relieves us of the weight of the rocks of sin. And by this exquisite gift, God's mercy relieves us from the heavy and otherwise insurmountable demands of justice. The Atonement of Jesus Christ also makes it possible for us to receive strength to forgive, which allows us to unload the weight we carry because of mistreatment by others. So how does the Savior relieve us of the burdens of living in a fallen world with mortal bodies subject to grief and pain? Often He performs that kind of relief through us. As covenant members of His Church, we promise to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Because we are come into the fold of God and are called His people, we are willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light. Our covenantal blessing is to partner with Jesus Christ in providing relief, both temporal and spiritual, to all of God's children. We are a conduit through which He provides relief. And so, like the friends of the man with palsy, we succor the weak lift up the hands which hang down, and strengthen the feeble knees, we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. As we do, we come to know Him, become like Him, and find His relief." What is relief? It is the removal or lightening of something painful, troubling, or burdensome, or the strength to endure it. It refers to a person who takes the place of another. It is the legal correction of a wrong. The Anglo-French word comes from Old French, the word relever, or to raise up, and from the Latin, relevare or raise again. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is relief. I testify that He did rise again on the third day, and having fulfilled the loving and infinite Atonement, stands with open arms offering to us the opportunity to rise again, be saved, and be exalted, and become like Him. The relief He offers us is everlasting. Like the women visited by the angel on that first Easter morning, I wish to go quickly and with great joy to bring the word that He is risen. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.
5: In fulfillment of the prophecy given to Zechariah, Jesus triumphantly entered the holy city riding upon a donkey, which was considered in literature an ancient symbol of Jewish royalty, as indeed befitted the King of Kings and Prince of Peace. Surrounded by a multitude of jubilant disciples who spread out their garments, palm leaves, and other foliage Along the path where Jesus passed, they praised God, saying with a loud voice, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And again, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. This majestic event which we celebrate on this day known as Palm Sunday, was a joyful prelude to the excruciating events that would occur during that fateful week culminating in the Savior's selfless sacrifice and the magnificent miracle of the empty tomb. As His followers, we are His peculiar people, called to proclaim His virtues, promoters of the peace so generously offered through Him and His atoning sacrifice. This peace is a gift promised to all who turn their hearts to the Savior and live righteously. Such peace gives us the strength to enjoy mortal life and enables us to endure the painful trials of our journey. In 1847, the Lord gave specific instructions to the pioneer saints who needed peace to remain calm and united as they face unexpected difficulties on their westward journey. Among other things, the Lord instructed the Saints to cease to contend with one another, cease to speak evil of one another. The scriptures affirm that those who practice works of righteousness and strive to walk in the meekness of the Spirit of the Lord are promised the peace they need to survive the days of commotion in which we live today. As disciples of the Prince of Peace, we have been instructed to live with hearts knit together in unity and love, one towards another. Our beloved prophet, President Russell M. Nelson, recently stated, "...contention violates everything the Savior stood for and taught." Our prophet also implored that we do all we can to end personal conflicts that are currently raging in our hearts and in our lives. Let us consider these principles in view of Christ's pure love for us and that we, as His followers, seek to have for one another. The scriptures define this kind of love as charity. When we think of charity, our minds usually turn to the generous acts and donations to relieve the suffering of those who are experiencing physical, material, or emotional difficulties. Still, charity is not only related to something we donate to someone, but it is an attribute of the Savior we can become part and can become part of our character. It is not surprising that the Lord instructed to clothe ourselves with the bond of charity, which is the bond of perfectness and peace. Without charity, we are nothing, and we cannot inherit the place the Lord has prepared for us in the mansions of our Heavenly Father. Jesus perfectly exemplified what it means to own this bond of perfection and peace, especially when facing the agonizing events that preceded His martyrdom. Think for a moment about what Jesus must have felt as He humbly washed His disciples' feet, knowing that one of them would betray Him that very night, or when Jesus, hours later, mercifully healed the ear of, of the one man who had accompanied Judas, his betrayer, to arrest him, or even when the Savior, standing in front of Pilate, was unfairly accused by the chief priestess and elders, and not a word he uttered against the false charges against him, and he left the Roman governor marveling. Through these three tragic incidents, the Savior, despite being burdened with excessive sadness and stress, taught us by His example that charity suffered long, and is kind, envieth not, vaunted not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, and thinketh no evil. Another important aspect to emphasize, and one that has direct implications on our discipleship and how we promote the peace of the Savior, is the manner in which we treat each other. During His earthly ministry, the Savior's teachings focused not only but particularly on the virtues of love, charity, patience, humility, and compassion fundamental attributes to those who want to become closer to Him and promote His peace. Such attributes are gifts from God, and as we strive to develop them, we will begin to see our neighbors' differences and weaknesses with more empathy, sensitivity, respect, and tolerance. One of the most evident signs that we are drawing closer to the Savior and becoming more like Him is the loving, patient, and kind way which we treat our fellow beings, whatever the circumstances. We often see people who engage in negative and derogatory comments about the perceived characteristics, weaknesses, and opinions of others, mainly when such characteristics and opinions differ or contradict how they act and think. It is very common to see these people passing on such comments to others who repeat what they heard without truly knowing all the circumstances surrounding a situation. Unfortunately, social media encourages this kind of behavior in the name of relative truths or transparency. Without restraint, Digital conversation often leads people to personal attacks and heated disputes, creating disappointments, wounding hearts, and spreading flaming hostility. Nephi prophesied that in the latter days the enemy would rage and stir up people to anger against what is good. The scriptures teach that everything which inviteth and enticeth to do good and to love God and to serve Him is inspired of God. On the other hand, that which is evil cometh of the devil, for the devil is an enemy unto God, and fighteth against him continually, and inviteth and enticeth to sin, and to do which is evil continually. Considering this prophetic teaching, it is not surprising that one of the adversary's tactics is to stir up enmity and hate in the hearts of God's children. He rejoices when he sees people criticizing, ridiculing, and slandering one another. This behavior can destroy a person's character, reputation, and self-esteem, particularly when judged unfairly. It is critical to point out that when we allow this type of attitude in our lives, we make room in our hearts for the enemy to plant the seed of discord among us, risking failing into his voracious trap. If we are not careful with our thoughts, words, and actions, we may end up being entangled by the canning tricks of the enemy, destroying our relationships with the people around us and our loved ones. Brothers and sisters, as the Lord's peculiar people and promoters of His peace, we cannot afford to allow districts of the evil one to take place in our hearts. We cannot carry such a corrosive burden that destroys feelings, relationships, and even lives. The gospel represents good tidings of great joy. Of course, none of us is perfect, and certainly there are times when we are beguiled into this type of behavior. In His perfect love and omniscient knowledge of our human tendencies, the Savior always tries to warn us of such dangers. He taught us, For with what judgment ye judge, it shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again." My dear brothers and sisters, as we strive to develop attributes like the Savior's, we can become instruments of His peace in the world according to the pattern that He Himself established. I invite you to consider ways we can transform ourselves into uplifting and supportive people, people who have an understanding and forgiving heart, people who look for the best in others, always remembering that if there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. I promise you that as we pursue and develop these attributes, we will become more and more cordial and sensitive to the needs of our fellow beings, and we will experience joy, peace, and spiritual growth. Undoubtedly, the Lord will recognize our efforts and give us the gifts we need to be more tolerant and patient with one another's differences, weaknesses, and imperfections. Furthermore will be better able to resist the urge to take offense or offend those who hurt us. As did the Savior, our desire to forgive those who mistreated us or speak evil about us will surely increase and will become part of our character. May we today, on this Palm Sunday, spread out our, our robes of love and palm leaves of charity, walking in the footsteps of the Prince of Peace as we prepare to celebrate this coming Sunday the miracle of the empty tomb. As brothers and sisters in Christ, let us joyfully proclaim, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I testify that Jesus Christ lives, and that His perfect love, expressed through His atoning sacrifice, is extended to all who desire to walk with Him and enjoy His peace in this world and in the world to come. I say these things in the holy name of the Savior and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.
6: Yesterday, my dear friend, Elder Rando K. Bennett, talked about patriarch blessings. It was a great message and inspired us all. My dear brothers and sisters, may I talk about patriarch blessing as well? Patriarchs, as requests for patriarch blessing may increase, I pray that the Lord will bless you as you continue to magnify your callings. As I go to stake conferences, I always visit with the stake patriarch and his spouse. Patriarchs are gentle, obedient, and incredible leaders called of God. They tell me many wonderful spiritual experiences. I ask them the age of the youngest and the oldest person to whom they have given a blessing, so far, The youngest was 11, and the oldest was 93. I received my patriarch blessing as a new member of the Church at age 19, two years after I was baptized. My patriarch was incredibly old. He joined the Church in 1916 and was a pioneer of the Church in Japan. It was my great honor to receive my patriarchal blessing from that remarkable disciple of the Lord. His Japanese was a bit difficult for me to understand, but it was powerful. The patriarchs I have met tell me that many individuals receive their patriarchal blessing just before serving a mission. My dear young men, young women, parents, and bishops, patriarchal blessings are not only for preparation to serve in a mission. Worthy baptized members may receive their patriarchal blessing when the time is right for them. Dear adult members, some of you have not yet received your patriarchal blessings. Remember, there is no maximum age. My mother-in-law was a very active Church member, serving as a Relief Society teacher, until she passed away at age 90. I was sad to learn that she did not receive a patriarch blessing. She experienced many difficulties in her life. And because she did not have a priesthood holder in the home, She did not receive many principal blessings. A patriarchal blessing may have given her comfort when she needed it most. Adults, if you have not yet received a patriarchal blessing, please do not worry. Everyone's spiritual timeline is different. If you are 35 or 85, and you have a desire, talk to your bishop about receiving your blessing. New members of the Church, have you heard of patriarch blessings? I didn't know about the opportunity to receive one when I joined the Church. But my beloved bishop told me and about patriarch blessings and encouraged me to prepare to receive mine after I was baptized. My dear new members, you can receive a patriarch blessing as well. The Lord will help you prepare for this sacred opportunity. Let's consider two purposes for a patriarch blessing. One, a patriarch blessing contains personal counsel from the Lord to you. Two, a patriarchal blessing declares your lineage in the house of Israel. Your patriarchal blessing is a message from your Heavenly Father and will likely include promises and inspire counsel to guide you throughout your life. A patriarchal blessing is not going to map out your life or answer all your questions. If it doesn't mention an important life event, do not take that to mean you won't have that opportunity. Likewise, there is no guarantee everything your blessing will come to pass in this life. A patriarchal blessing is eternal. And if you live worthy promises that are not fulfilled, in this life will be granted in the next. As you receive a declaration of a lineage, you will come to know that you are of the house of Israel and the seed of Abraham. To understand that significance of this, focus on the promises that Lord made to the house of Israel through Abraham. Those promises include His postality will be numerous. His seed, or descendants, will receive the gospel and bear the priesthood. Through the ministry of his seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed even with the blessing of the gospel, which are the blessing of the salvation, even of life eternal." As members of the Church, we are children of the covenant. We receive the blessing of the Abrahamic Covenant as we obey the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Preparation for your Patriarch blessing will help you in, increase your faith in Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And when you receive your Patriarch blessing, and read and ponder it, you can focus on them more often. President Thomas S. Monson explained, the same Lord who provided the Ahona for Lehi provides for you and for me today a rare and valuable gift to give direction to our lives, to mark the hollows, to our safety, and to chart the way, even save passage, not to a promised land. But to a heavenly home. My dear bishops, parents, elders, quorum, leadership society presidents, world mission leaders, ministering brothers and sisters, please encourage those young men, and young women, adult members, and new members who have not yet received their patriarch blessing to seek the Lord's direction and help in preparing themselves to do so. I frequently and prayerfully read my patriarch blessing. It always gives me encouragement. I recognize what the Lord expects of me, and it has helped me to repent and be humble. When I read and ponder it, I desire to live worthy of receiving its promised blessing. Just as the scriptures we have read, Many times have a new meaning to us later. Our patriarch blessing will have a different meaning to us at a different times. Mine has a different meaning now than it did when I was thirty and when I was fifty. It is not that the words change, but we see them in a different way. President Darren H. Oakes declared that the patriarch blessing is given under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and should be read and interpreted under the influence of that same Spirit. The meaning and significance of a patriarch blessing will be taught line upon line in the course of time by the power of the same Spirit that inspired it. Brothers and sisters, I bear my witness that Heavenly Father and His beloved and only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, live. They love us. Patriarch blessings are sacred gifts from them. When you receive your blessing, you will realize and feel how they love you and how they focus on you individually. The Book of Mormon is another testament of Jesus Christ, and I am grateful to be led by a living prophet, President Nelson. I am so grateful for Savior Jesus Christ. This Easter Sunday, I will focus on Him and His Resurrection and worship Him and give thanks for His sacrifice. I know He suffered so deeply because He loves us so deeply. I know He was resurrected because of His love for us. He is real, I so testify, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Amen. As directed, The congregation will join the choir in singing Guide Us, O Thou Great Jehovah. After the singing, we will hear from Elder Neal L. Anderson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. He will be followed by Elder Kevin R. Duncan of the Seventy.
0: This is the Sunday morning session of the 193rd Annual General Conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.
7: In this beautiful Easter season, I echo the prayer of this powerful hymn, Guide Us, Guide Us, O Thou Great Jehovah. A remarkable story in the Book of Mormon tells of a young man from a prominent family named Alma, who the scriptures describe as an idolatrous unbeliever. He was articulate and convincing using flattery to persuade others to follow him. Astonishingly, an angel appeared to Alma and his friends. Alma fell to the earth and was so weak that he was carried helplessly to his father's home. He remained in a seemingly comatose state for three days. Later, he explained that while he appeared unconscious to those around him, his mind was very active, as his soul grieved, thinking about the life of disregarding the commandments of God. He described his mind as being harrowed up by the memory of his many sins and racked with eternal torment. In his deep despair, he remembered being taught in his youth about the coming of one Jesus Christ, a Son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. Next, he made this very compelling statement. As my mind caught hold upon this thought, I cried within my heart, O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy on me. As he appealed for the divine power of the Savior, something miraculous happened. When I thought this, he said, I could remember my pains no more. Suddenly, he felt peace and light. Nothing was so exquisite and sweet as was my joy," he declared. Alma caught hold upon the truth of Jesus Christ. If we were using the words caught hold upon in a physical sense, we might say, he caught hold upon the guardrail just as he was falling meaning he reached out suddenly and tightly seized something solidly cemented to a secure foundation. In Alma's case, it was his mind that reached out and secured this powerful truth of Jesus Christ's atoning sacrifice. Acting in faith on that truth and by the power and grace of God, he was rescued from despair and filled with hope. While our experiences may not be as dramatic as Almas, they are nonetheless as eternally significant. Our minds have also caught hold upon this thought of Jesus Christ and His merciful sacrifice, and our souls have felt the light and joy that follows. My prayer at this Easter season is that we will more consciously shape strengthen and secure this preeminent thought of Jesus Christ in the chambers of our soul allowing us to allowing it to eagerly flow into our mind guiding us in what we think and do and continually bringing the sweet joy of the savior's love Filling our mind with the power of Jesus Christ does not mean that he, that he is the only thought we have, but it does mean that all our thoughts are circumscribed in His love, His life and teachings, and His atoning sacrifice and glorious Resurrection. Jesus is never in a forgotten corner because our thoughts of Him are always present, and all that is in us adores Him. We pray and rehearse in our mind experiences that have brought us closer to Him. We welcome into our mind divine images, holy scriptures, and inspired hymns to gently cushion the countless daily thoughts rushing through our busy lives. Our love for Him does not shield us from the sadness and sorrow in this mortal life, but it allows us to walk through the challenges with a strength far beyond our own. Jesus, the very thought of Thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far Thy face to see, and in Thy presence rest." Remember, you are a spirit child of Heavenly Father. As the Apostle Paul explains, we are the offspring of God. You have lived with your own individual identity long before coming to earth. Our Father created a perfect plan for us to come to earth, learn, and return to Him. He sent His beloved Son that through the power of His infinite Atonement and Resurrection, we live beyond the grave. And as we are willing to exercise faith in Him and repent of our sins, we are forgiven and receive the hope of eternal life. In this mortal life, our mind and spirit need exceptional attention. Our mind allows us to live, to choose, and to discern good and evil. Our spirit receives the confirming witness that God is our Father, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that their teachings are our guide to happiness here and eternal life beyond the grave. The mind of Alma caught hold upon this thought of Jesus Christ, and it changed his life. General Conference is a time to understand what the Lord would have us do and become. It is also a time to reflect on our progress. As my assignments have taken me throughout the world, I have observed an increasing spiritual strength in the righteous, devoted members of the Church. Five years ago, we were asked to place the Savior more prominently in all we do by using the true name of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are speaking His name more earnestly. Four years ago, by reducing the time of our sacrament meeting, we increased our focus on partaking of the Lord's sacrament. We are thinking more of Jesus Christ and are more serious in our promise to always remember Him. With the isolation of the worldwide pandemic and the help of Come, Follow Me, the teachings of the Savior are becoming more prominent in our homes, helping our worship of the Savior during the week. By following President Russell M. Nelson's counsel to hear him, we are refining our ability to recognize the whisperings of the Holy Ghost, and to see the hand of the Lord in our lives. With the announcement and completions of dozens of temples, we are more frequently entering the house of the Lord and receiving His promised blessings. We are feeling more powerfully the transcendent beauty of our Savior and Redeemer. President Nelson said, There is nothing easy or automatic about becoming a powerful disciple. Our focus must be riveted on the Savior and His gospel. It is mentally rigorous to strive to look unto Him in every thought. By focusing our attention on Jesus Christ, all else around us, while still present, is viewed through our love for Him Less important distractions fade, and we remove those things that are not in keeping with His light and character. As you continue to attentively catch hold of this thought of Jesus Christ, trust in Him, and keep His commandments, I promise you not only heavenly guidance but heavenly power, power to bring strength to your covenants, peace to your difficulties and joy to your blessings. A few weeks ago, Kathy and I visited the home of Matt and Sarah Johnson. On the wall was a picture of their precious family, a beautiful image of the Savior, and an illustration of the temple. Their four daughters, Maddie, Ruby, Claire, and June, spoke happily about how much they loved their mother. For over a year, Sarah had regularly scheduled Saturday appointments for the family to attend the temple together so that the girls could participate in baptisms for family members who lived previously. In November of last year, Sarah scheduled a family temple appointment for the last week in December on Thursday instead of Saturday. I hope you're okay with that, she said to Matt. Sarah had been diagnosed with cancer, but the doctors anticipated she would live two or three more years. During a sacrament meeting, Sarah had shared her powerful testimony, saying that whatever the outcome for her, she loved the Savior with all her heart and that the victory had already been won by Him. As December progressed, Unexpectedly, Sarah's health rapidly declined, and she was admitted to the hospital. In the early morning of Thursday, December 29th, she quietly completed her mortality. Matt had been by Sarah's side all through the night. With his heart breaking and completely exhausted physically and emotionally, he arrived home sorrowing with his daughters. As Matt glanced at his phone, he noticed the reminder of the unusual Thursday temple appointment Sarah had scheduled for later that day. Matt said, When I first saw it, I thought, This just isn't going to work. But then Matt's mind caught hold upon the thought, the Savior lives. There is no place we would rather be as a family than in His holy house. Matt, Maddie, Ruby, Claire, and June arrived at the temple for the appointments Sarah had scheduled for them. With tears streaming down his cheeks, Matt performed the baptisms with his daughters. They deeply felt their love and eternal bond with Sarah, and they felt the immense love and comforting peace of the Savior. Matt tenderly shared, While I feel deep sorrow and grief, I am shouting for joy, knowing my Father's wonderful plan of salvation. In this Easter season, I witness the complete and absolute truth of the Savior's incomparable atoning sacrifice and of His glorious Resurrection as your mind remains firmly and forever upon the thought of Jesus Christ, and as you continue to focus your life more fully on the Savior, I promise you that you will feel His hope, His peace, and His love. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
8: Now what do we hear in the gospel which we have received? A voice of gladness, a voice of mercy from heaven, and a voice of truth out of the earth. Glad tidings for both the living and the dead, glad tidings of great joy. Brothers and sisters, it is almost impossible to hear these words from the Prophet Joseph Smith and not break out into a great big smile. Joseph's jubilant expression truly captures the full and majestic joy found in God, our Heavenly Father's great plan of happiness, for as He has assured us, men are that they might have joy. We all shouted for joy in our premortal life when we heard God's plan of happiness, and we continue to shout for joy here as we live according to His plan. But what exactly was the context for this happy declaration from the Prophet? What spurred these deep and heartfelt emotions? The Prophet Joseph had been teaching about baptism for the dead. This was indeed a glorious revelation that was received with great joy. When Church members first learned that they could be baptized for their deceased loved ones, they rejoiced. Wilford Woodruff said, The moment I heard of it, my soul leaped for joy." Baptisms for our deceased loved ones wasn't the only truth the Lord would reveal and restore. There were a host of other gifts or endowments that God had been eager to bestow upon His sons and daughters. These other gifts included priesthood authority, covenants and ordinances, marriages that could last forever, the sealing of children to their parents within the family of God, and ultimately the blessing of returning home to the presence of God our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. All these blessings were made possible through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Because God considered these to be among His highest and holiest blessings, He instructed that sacred buildings be erected where He could confer these precious gifts upon His children. These buildings would be His home on earth. These buildings would be temples where that which was sealed or bound on earth in His name and by His word and with His authority would be bound in the heavens. As members of the Church today, it could become easy for some of us to take these glorious eternal truths for granted. They have become second nature to us. Sometimes it is helpful when we see them through the eyes of those who learn about them for the very first time. This became evident to me through a recent experience. Last year, just prior to the rededication of the Tokyo Japan Temple, many guests not of our faith toured that temple. One such tour included a thoughtful leader from another religion. We taught our friend about Heavenly Father's plan of happiness, Jesus Christ's redeeming role in that plan, and the doctrine that the family can be united eternally through the sealing ordinance. At the conclusion of the tour, I invited our friend to share his feelings. In reference to the Uniting of Families, both past, present, and future, this good man asked in all sincerity, Do the members of your faith truly understand just how profound this doctrine is? He added, This may well be one of the only teachings that can unite this world that is so divided. What a powerful observation! This man was not moved simply by the exquisite craftsmanship of the temple but rather by the stunning and profound doctrine that families are united and sealed to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ forever. We should not be surprised then when even someone not of our faith recognizes the majesty of what happens in the temple. What could become common or routine for us is sometimes seen in its splendor and majesty by those who hear it or feel it for the very first time. Although temples had existed anciently, with the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the building of temples has been one of the highest priorities of all prophets since the Prophet Joseph Smith and is easy to understand why. When the Prophet Joseph was teaching about baptism for the dead, he revealed another great truth. He taught, Let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation, for their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation. They without us cannot be made perfect, neither can we without our dead be made perfect." As we can see, the need for temples and the work that is done for both the living and the dead becomes very clear. The adversary is on the alert. His power is threatened by the ordinances and covenants performed in temples, and He does anything He can to try to stop the work. Why? Because He knows of the power that comes from this sacred work. As each temple is dedicated, the saving power of Jesus Christ expands throughout the world to counteract the efforts of the adversary and to redeem us as we come unto Him. As temples and covenant keepers grow in number, the adversary grows weaker. In the early days of the Church, some would worry when a new temple would be announced, for they would say, We never began to build a temple without the bells of hell starting to ring. But Brigham Young courageously retorted, I want to hear them ring again. In this mortal life, we will never escape the war, but we can have power over the enemy. That power and strength come from Jesus Christ as we make and keep temple covenants. President Russell M. Nelson has taught, "...the time is coming when those who do not obey the Lord will be separated from those who do. Our safest insurance is to continue to be worthy of admission to His holy house." Here are some additional blessings God has promised us through His prophet. Do you need miracles? Our prophet has said, I promise you that the Lord will bring the miracles He knows you need as you make sacrifices to serve and worship in His temples. Do you need the healing and strengthening power of our Savior, Jesus Christ? President Nelson reassures us that everything taught in the temple increases our understanding of Jesus Christ. As we continue to keep our covenants, He endows us with His healing, strengthening power, and, oh, how we will need His power in the days ahead!" On that first Palm Sunday, as Jesus Christ triumphantly entered Jerusalem, a multitude of the disciples of Jesus Christ praised God with a loud voice, saying, "'Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord.'" How fitting that on Palm Sunday of 1836, the Kirtland Temple was being dedicated. On that occasion, the disciples of Jesus Christ were rejoicing as well. In that dedicatory prayer, the Prophet Joseph Smith declared these words of praise, O Lord God Almighty, hear us and answer us from heaven, where Thou sits enthroned with glory, honor, power, majesty, and might. Help us that by the power of Thy Spirit we may mingle our voices with those bright, shining seraphs around Thy throne, with acclamations of praise, singing, Hosanna to God and the Lamb, and let these Thy Saints shout aloud for joy." Brothers and sisters, today on this Palm Sunday, let us, as disciples of Jesus Christ, also praise our holy God and rejoice in His goodness to us. What do we hear in the gospel which we have received? Truly a voice of gladness. I witness that you will feel joy more and more as you enter the holy temples of the Lord, and I witness that you will experience the joy He in turn has for you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
1: We are grateful to those who have spoken to us and to the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square for the beautiful music they have provided. The choir will now favor us with This is the Christ. The concluding speaker for this session will be our beloved Prophet, President Russell M. Nelson. Following his remarks, the choir will close this meeting by singing, I Believe in Christ. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Tiri K. Matumbo of the Seventy.
9: My dear brothers and sisters, it is a joy to be with you. During these past six months, you have been constantly on my mind and in my prayers. I pray that the Holy Ghost will communicate what the Lord wants you to hear as I speak to you now. During my surgical internship many years ago, I assisted a surgeon who was amputating a leg filled with highly infectious gangrene. The operation was difficult. Then, to add to the tension, one of the team performed a task poorly, and the surgeon erupted in anger. In the middle of his tantrum, he threw his scalpel loaded with germs. It landed in my forearm. (laughs) Everyone in the operating room, except the out-of-control surgeon, was horrified by this dangerous breach of surgical practice. Gratefully, I I did not become infected, (laughs) but this experience left a lasting impression on me. In that very hour, I promised myself that whatever happened in my operating room, I would never lose control of my emotions. I also vowed that day never to throw anything in anger, whether it be scalpels or words. Even now, decades later, I find myself wondering if the contaminated scalpel that landed in my arm was any more toxic than the venomous contention that infects our civic dialogue and too many personal relationships today. Civility and decency seem to have disappeared during this era of polarization and passionate disagreements. Vulgarity, fault-finding, and evil speaking of others are all too common. Too many pundits, politicians, entertainers, and other influencers throw insults constantly. I am greatly concerned that so many people seem to believe that it is completely acceptable to condemn, malign, and vilify anyone Who does not agree with them? Many seem eager to damage another's reputation with pathetic and pithy barbs. Anger never persuades. Hostility builds no one. Contention never leads to inspired solutions. Regrettably, we sometimes see contentious behavior even within our own ranks. We hear of those who belittle their spouses and children, of those who use angry outbursts to control others, and of those who punish family members with a silent treatment. We hear of youth and children who bully and of employees who defame their colleagues. My dear brothers and sisters, this should not be. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to be examples of how to interact with others, especially when we have differences of opinion. One of the easiest ways to identify a true follower of Jesus Christ is how compassionately that person treats other people. The Savior made this clear in His sermon to followers in both hemispheres. Blessed are the peacemakers, He said. Whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And then, of course, he gave the admonition that challenges each of us, quote, "...love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you." Quote. Before His death, the Savior commanded His twelve apostles to love one another as He had loved them. And then He added, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. The Savior's message is clear. His true disciples build, lift, encourage, persuade, and inspire no matter how difficult the situation True disciples of Jesus Christ are peacemakers. Today is Palm Sunday. We are preparing to commemorate the most important and transcendent event ever recorded on earth, which is the Atonement and Resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the best ways we can honor the Savior is to become a peacemaker. The Savior's Atonement made it possible for us to overcome all evil, including contention. Make no mistake about it, contention is evil. Jesus Christ declared that those who have the spirit of contention are not of Him but are of the devil who is the father of contention, and the devil stirreth up the hearts of men to contend with anger one with another." Those who foster contention are taking a page out of Satan's playbook, whether they realize it or not. No man can serve two masters. We cannot support Satan with our verbal assaults and then think that we can still serve God. My dear brothers and sisters, how we treat each other really matters. How we speak to and about others at home, at church, at work, and online really matters. Today I am asking us to interact with others in a higher, holier way. Please listen carefully. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy that we can say about another person, whether to his face or behind her back, That should be our standard of communication. If a couple in your ward gets divorced, or a young missionary returns home early, or a teenager doubts his testimony, they do not need your judgment. They need to experience the pure love of Jesus Christ reflected in your words and actions. If a friend on social media has strong political or social views that violate everything you believe in, an angry, cutting retort by you will not help. Building bridges of understanding will require much more of you. But that is exactly what your friend needs. Contention drives away the spirit every time. Contention reinforces the false notion that confrontation is the way to resolve differences, but it never is. Contention is a choice. Peacemaking is a choice. You have your agency to choose contention or reconciliation. I urge you to be a peacemaker, now and always. Brothers and sisters, we can literally change the world, one person and one interaction at a time. How? By modeling how to manage honest differences of opinion with mutual respect and dignified dialogue. Differences of opinion are part of life. I work every day with dedicated servants of the Lord who do not always see an issue the same way. They know I want to hear their ideas and honest feelings about everything we discuss especially sensitive issues. My two noble counselors, President Oaks and President Iring, are exemplary in the way they express their feelings, especially when they may differ. They do so with pure love for each other. Neither suggests that, the, that he knows best and therefore must rigorously defend his position, neither evidences the need to compete with the other. Because each is filled with charity, the pure love of Christ, our deliberations can be guided by the Spirit of the Lord. How I love and honor these two great men! Charity is the antidote to contention. Charity is the spiritual gift that helps us to cast off the natural man who is selfish, defensive, prideful, and jealous. Charity is the principal characteristic of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Charity defines a peacemaker. When we humble ourselves before God and pray with all the energy of our hearts, God will grant us charity. Those blessed with this supernal gift are long-suffering and kind. They do not envy others and are not caught up in their own importance. They are not easily provoked and do not think evil of others. Brothers and sisters, the pure love of Christ is the answer to the contention that ails us today. Charity propels us to bear one another's burdens rather than heap burdens upon each other. The pure love of Christ allows us to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things especially in tense situations. Charity allows us to demonstrate how men and women of Christ speak and act, especially when under fire. Now, I'm not talking about peace at any price. I'm talking about treating others in ways that are consistent with keeping the covenant you make when you partake of the sacrament, you covenant to always remember the Savior. In situations that are highly charged and filled with contention, I invite you to remember Jesus Christ. Pray to have the courage and wisdom to say or do what He would. As we follow the Prince of Peace, we will become His peacemakers. At this point, you may be thinking that this message would really help someone you know. <laughs> Perhaps you're hoping it will help him or her to be nicer to you. <laughs> I hope it will. But I also hope that you will look deeply into your heart to see if there are shards of pride or jealousy that prevent you from becoming a peacemaker. If you are serious about helping to gather Israel and about building relationships that will last throughout the eternities, now is the time to lay aside bitterness. Now is the time to cease insisting that it is your way or no way. Now is the time to stop doing things that make others walk on eggshells for fear of upsetting you. Now is the time to bury your weapons of war. If your verbal arsenal is filled with insults and accusations Now is the time to put them away. You will arise as a spiritually strong man or woman of Christ. The temple can help us in our quest. There, we are endowed with God's power, giving us the ability to overcome Satan, the instigator of all contention. Cast him out of your relationships. Note that we also rebuke the adversary every time we heal a misunderstanding or refuse to take offense. Instead, we can show the tender mercy that is characteristic of true disciples of Jesus Christ. Peace- peacemakers thwart the adversary. Let us, as a people, become a true light on the hill, a light that cannot be hid. Let us show that there is a peaceful and respectful way to resolve complex issues and an enlightened way to work out disagreements. As you demonstrate the charity that true followers of Jesus Christ manifest, The Lord will magnify your efforts beyond your loftiest imagination. The gospel net is the largest net in the world. God has invited all to come unto Him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. There's room for everyone. However, there is no room for prejudice, condemnation, or contention of any kind. My dear brothers and sisters, the best is yet to come for those who spend their lives building up others. Today, I invite you to examine your discipleship within the context of the way you treat others. I bless you to make any adjustment that may be needed so that your behavior is ennobling, respectful, and representative of a true follower of Jesus Christ. I bless you to replace belligerence with beseeching, animosity with understanding, and contention with peace. God lives, Jesus is the Christ, He stands at the head of this Church, we are His servants. He will help us to become His peacemakers. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen.
10: Our most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before Thee at this time in humility and faith to thank Thee, Father, for this wonderful Sabbath day. We thank Thee for Thy spirits that we feel among us and for all the messages that we have received today. As we prepare, Father, to celebrate Easter, we bow ourselves with humility to thank Thee for the gift of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, who has given His life for us. He lived for us and died for us so that we may live again and have the possibility to return to live with Thee forever, and become like thee and thy Son, Jesus Christ. We love him, we worship him, and then we will eternally be grateful for his atoning sacrifice and resurrection. We thank thee, O God, for the prophets. We have heard thy voice through our living prophets, President Nelson. We love him and pray for him. We pray that thou strengthen him and that thou bless his counselors and that thou bless all that we sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators. Now that we are at the end of this wonderful session, we have been inspired by thy words, by the music testimonies. We pray that thou help us as we leave this session to see others as thou sees us, that we may love each other, strengthen each other, and help each other to progress and prepare ourselves to return to live with thee again, as we know that thy glory is our progression. We thank thee, Father, for the opportunity that now we have to prepare ourselves to continue to move forward on the covenant path. We pray that Thou help us to follow Jesus Christ with all our hearts, might, mind, and strength and to gladly take upon us His name and joyfully follow His footstep. Let us be His extended arms so that as we go out, we may love each other, strengthen each other, and avoid any contention as Thy mouthpiece, as clearly taught us today. We love Thee and express this humble prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.
0: This has been a broadcast of the Sunday morning session of the 193rd Annual General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Speakers were selected from leaders of the Church. Music for this session was provided by the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. This broadcast has been furnished as a public service by Bonneville Distribution. Any reproduction, recording, transcription, or other use of this program without written consent is prohibited.
9: On KSL FM Midvale, KSL Salt Lake City.